Hey, everybody, this is Bob Goodwin, and welcome to another episode of Career Club Live. Uh, we have a very special guest for you today, but before we get into that, uh, I want to say that uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please make sure that you like, comment, and subscribe. And for all of you listeners on whichever podcast platform you happen to find us on, please do uh, leave a review and rate us. It really does help. So thank you so much for that. Today's episode is brought to you by our newest service called Next Placement, which is our innovation in the career transitioning services for companies that are transitioning employees, where we're taking a more people-centric, empathetic approach to helping transitioning employees. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest today, Raja Rajamanar. Raja is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for MasterCard and President of their healthcare business. Raj is consistently recognized globally as a highly innovative and transformational leader in his field, as recognized by some recent accolades, including Global Marketer of the Year, awarded by the World Federation of Advertisers, Top 5 World's Most Influential CMOs by Forbes, Top 10 World's Most Innovative CMOs by Business Insider, and an inductee into the CMO Club Hall of Fame. Wow. I'll catch my breath, and I know I only read about half of it. So with that, Raju, welcome. Thank you very much. Really appreciate having me here, Bob. No, it's my pleasure. So where do we find you today? Where are you? I'm in New York today. Oh, very good. So I want to be mindful of our time. Our uh, habit is usually to ask just a few icebreaker questions. So if you would indulge me for a second, it kind of helps people get to know you a little bit as a human being besides uh uh, your legendary status as a marketer. So just very quickly, where were you born and raised? I was born in a city called Hyderabad in India. Mm -hmm. And I uh, lived in India almost till I was 32 years old. And then I left the country at that stage. And since then, I have been living abroad in different countries, different geographies around the world. And in the United States, I have been around since 2001. Very good. Now, we have to call this one out. And where do you reside these days? I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Of course, where everybody that knows what's going on lives, Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where we are as well. Um, just a little bit about your family. So I'm married for the last, uh, how many years is it? About 34 years. Very good. Congratulations. My wife and uh, I, we are happily married. We have a good understanding. I work hard at outside office and she works hard at home. Amen. And we have two boys. The first guy, he is 31, and my second son, he is 26, and they are both blessings. Exactly. So congratulations. 34 years, that's uh, quite an accomplishment. We don't see that quite as much these days. We may even talk about loyalty somewhere in this conversation, so that's that's a good one. And then um, what do we find you doing when you're not at work? What are hobbies or, or areas of passion for you? So I read a lot, and I enjoy reading a lot. Uh, I listen to a lot of music. I go out on walks. I explore the world. I travel to different places. And when I go on work, I try to take a day or two after my official engagements are over. That's where my vacation gets mostly spent. Mm -hmm. I don't like the local cultures, the local architecture, the archaeological ruins, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, all kinds of things. You know, My interests are pretty diverse. And uh, I also really try to you know, spend a lot of time going to the universities and I do guest lectures uh, to the students as well as to the members of the executive uh, management programs that are there at various uh, uh, colleges, business schools. Mm -hmm. So 
So this is what I do and keep myself generally busy. Okay, so a couple quick questions just to do a deep dive. Uh, in terms of music, what's the genre and maybe a couple of your favorite artists? Genre, essentially, I would say is Bollywood. <laughs> Bollywood. <laughs> they are silly, but they yeah. are fun. <laughs> so that's one thing I love quite a lot. I listen to country music. And, uh, and I also like music which is more melodious mm-hmm. uh, and, more, and softer. And uh, those are the areas which actually grab my interest. That's very cool. And then with respect to travel, uh, what's kind of on your top three list of places you have not been yet that you'd love to go to? There are quite a few, actually. The top three, I would say. Uh, I haven't visited a number of countries that I do want to in the African continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something which is I have only been to Egypt and South Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, in Africa, but other countries I have practically not gone there. Uh, so I would like to do that. I would also like to go to Maldives, which I haven't been there. Mm-hmm. And I would also like to go to Sri Lanka, which also I have not visited. Oh, very good. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I suspect that your travels will allow you to, to pick those up uh, sometime in the not too distant future. So that's cool. I hope so. So it is like beyond a pleasure, Raja, to have you and to be able to get a few minutes of just your expertise. I want to go ahead and dive in to your book, Quantum Marketing, uh, mm-hmm. as well as uh, talk a little bit about the fifth paradigm. But part of the setup, and, and you, I've heard some other interviews that you've given, and I'd love for you to talk about this for a minute, of why CMOs don't always have a seat at the proverbial table. What's, what's the gap that's keeping CMOs from having this coveted seat at the table? So I think this is something which is, I would say, self-inflicted by the CMOs themselves, mm-hmm. right? If you look at it from the perspective of a CEO, they are, they are wanting to grow the business profitably. They have to report out to the street every single quarter. Yes. And there is a level of anxiety. And they are giving lots of money to the marketers to help enable that growth. If marketers are not able to establish a clear connection between the marketing actions and the business outcomes, it shakes up the confidence of the CEO. Hmm. What happened is, particularly from the middle 1990s, mid 1990s onwards, marketing has become very quantitative. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of data, there is financial analysis, there is measurement of ROI, return on investment in a very methodical fashion and so on. And that's something which the CFOs and the CEOs are expected. But unfortunately, many of the CMOs who have reached that position, essentially through the qualitative side of marketing, they understand psychology, sociology, design, consumer studies. It's it's all very, very, very intuitive, right-brained, qualitative. Whereas the market reality has moved to the left brain side, which is technology, data, numbers. And many of the marketers did not really do that crossover effectively. Mm -hmm. As a result of which, when the CEO asks you a question, and if you look like a deer caught in headlights, Mm. you start losing your credibility. And it has been happening at scale, so much so that some of the surveys that were done amongst the CEOs, an overwhelming majority of them have said, they have zero confidence in their CMOs wow. or in their marketing teams to drive growth. 
as a result of which they have started, in some cases, companies like Johnson & Johnson have eliminated the role of a CMO altogether. So we're not talking about some obscure industrial companies which you don't anyway associate sophisticated marketing with. But you talk about blue chip companies like J&J. Coca-Cola wow. off a CMO for some time, but of course they have brought somebody back. And then the second part of it is CEOs want growth. So they are now getting a new breed of C-suite executives like chief growth officers, yes. chief revenue officers, chief customer officers. If you take revenue, growth, and customers away from marketing, what is left behind is fluff. Mm. Does that fluffy work need to sit at the CEO's table? Not really. So therefore, the CEOs are saying, why do you report to me? Let me manage my span of control, reduce it effectively, and therefore, they're actually pushing, pushing the CMOs below the uh, CEO reporting level. That has been a problem. So this idea of kind of like, as you say, what's left over is the fluff. And we, we even see this, you know, part of our, our model at Career Club is using proven sales and marketing techniques to help people find a career that matters to them. And one of the things that we share with them is the language of business is numbers, not adjectives. Yes. Right. And so you, know, you need to be able to demonstrate accomplishments in, in kind of we distill it down into three value buckets. Did you help the company make money, save money? Or mitigate risk and kind of everything distills down into one of those things. And I think what you're talking about is just laddering way up to a very important function that gets a lot of money that has sometimes trouble justifying where's all this money going and what are we getting in return? Yes, spot on. Absolutely. That is the crux of the problem. Uh, now, if you look at marketing, it was celebrated on the qualitative side forever. Yeah. But mid-1990s is when it actually started getting into a field of performance marketing. So today you find there are some companies which are predominantly performance marketing oriented. And yes. there are some companies which are still going around purely on the branding and the qualitative side. What is really required is a combination of both these. Yep. So in some sense, you have to be like a Leonardo da Vinci. You operate from your right brain and your left brain. Yes. Be effective on both the fronts. And that's exactly what is required. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. We, and and we, we hear that a lot with, with CMOs and other you know, executive marketers we deal with. It's sort of the classical branding stuff. It's performance marketing. And some people have maybe a third bucket that might be related to performance, but digital. You, just, you have to be super digital savvy. And people are picking which flavor of a CMO do they want. And I think what we're saying is like, well, it's kind of all of that, actually. Exactly. So, so you, you talked about, you know, kind of, historically, maybe that's a good platform to maybe do a quick run through of the first four paradigms and how that's led us to the fifth. Absolutely. You know, if you look at marketing as a field, it has been around for a long time as a craft. It was being practiced and evidence of it was visible in the ruins of Pompeii when archaeologists were digging into the ruins. And what they found fascinatingly were advertisements for political candidates extolling their virtues. They had all the elements of a modern campaign. And they were also being put up on houses of people who are wealthy. So it's more source credibility. And also in places where there was high traffic, mm. which is location-based marketing. Yep. So we have, but it's a very interesting kind of a concept, 2,000 plus years back. 
Now, taking from that, if you see, it's been evolving. But for the longest period, marketing was focused on product. I want to get the best product out into the marketplace from mm -hmm. a performance point of view. I want to package it well. I want to price it reasonably. And I want to make it available easily. So if I want a particular product, I should be able to find it next door as opposed to travel four hours to get that product. Mm -hmm. If you have these four P's of marketing correct, then, which is product, price, place, promotion, if you have these four correct, then customers will buy your product, you'll become a market leader. Because at the end of the day, aren't customers logical in their thinking and rational in their behavior? Why would they go for any inferior product or a more expensive product if it is at the same quality or a lousy packaging or very difficult equipment? Now, this is what prevailed in marketing for the longest time when marketers discovered the joys of something called psychology. Mm. Psychology, sociology, anthropology, if you look at those, most of the times people think illogically and they behave irrationally. For example, why does a customer put a lot of money in their savings bank, which gives them 1%, 2%, if at all, interest rate? And then they're borrowing at the same time with some loan or cards or whatever at 20%, 18%, 22%. It's illogical if you were to say, you can borrow from yourself. Why do you want to borrow from somebody else and pay so much of money? Right? It doesn't happen because people are wired very differently. When the psychology has come, that's when marketing moved from product marketing to emotional marketing. Because people realized that, our marketers realized that people act based on feelings and emotions, mm -hmm. not logical thinking. So that brought in the aspect of storytelling, which means you tell the right stories in the right manner to evoke the right emotions and feelings in people, and they will do in terms of purchasing towards your brand. They will purchase what you want them to if you impress them emotionally. Two technologies, one is called television, the other one is called radio, really help our storytelling capabilities brilliantly. That worked extremely well. And then when you go to the next level, which is in 1997, 1995, in that kind of a time frame, there were two technologies which came, which ushered or pushed marketing from the second paradigm of emotional marketing to data-driven digital marketing. Hmm. Why? Because in, 19, in, the, in that time, mid-1990s, the World Wide Web was born, which is internet. And Data analytics also entered the field of marketing. Between the internet and data, marketing changed completely. It transformed. You have digital marketing. You have got uh, uh, data-driven marketing. You have precision targeting. You got measurement of ROI. The quantification and the technology-drivenness of marketing manifested in this third paradigm. Then in 2007, marketing went through one more paradigm shift. This time, it was because of two technologies. Again, technology number one was iPhone was launched in 2007. Yeah. And that completely changed the entire, uh, what do you call, consumer behavior and the consumer landscape. When you get up with your phone, you look at your phone throughout the day, hundreds of times. The last thing you do is you sleep with your phone. And God forbidding, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you have to look at your phone to see what's happening in the world. That's how addictive these devices have become and how interactive they are. That changed our lives and therefore marketing had to change. The second one was the scaling of social media 
yeah. also in 2007 with Facebook. So that changed, again, how we interact with each other and how we actually learn about brands, comment about brands. It's become very different as a dynamic, right? So between these two technologies of universal mobile connected devices and the social media platforms, marketing had to reinvent itself. So now we have got social marketing or influencer marketing, mobile marketing, uh, location-based marketing, all kinds of new ones have been born. Mm -hmm. Now we are at the verge of the fifth paradigm. The paradigm shift is not being enabled by two technologies this time, but by 24 different technologies. Oh, in powerful technologies, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, blockchains, you've got 3D printing, 5G telecommunications, autonomous driving vehicles, you got wearables, you got internet of things, the list goes on and on and on. So you got 24 of them. Each one is incredibly powerful by itself. And the confluence of these 24 technologies is going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be a disruption that we will witness in marketing that is as yet unprecedented. And all the classical ways of doing marketing, including the theories, the practices, the strategic frameworks, all have to be reinvented and reimagined for this fifth paradigm. And that reimagined way of doing marketing is what I call quantum marketing. Yeah. And so, so it is overwhelming in, in one sense. I, if I can quote you for a second, you talk about this tsunami of emerging technologies, right? But then we've got the tectonic cultural shifts that are happening, right? Because society's not staying you know, uh, stable in one sense. And then just the explosion of data that all this technology is creating. So not just what we're experiencing, how we're experiencing it, but with the information that all that is gleaning, like my pulse and my sugar rate and you're just everything. Yep. So, so, so all of this is kind of coming to marketers simultaneously and the rate of change is never going to be slower than it is today. Right. It's only it's only speeding up. So, you know, break that down a little bit for marketers of like, then how do I prioritize? How do I not just drown in the quagmire of change? And, and you know, I'm so busy chasing the next thing because I'm worried about knowing everything there is to know about everything that I've actually forgotten the business chasing down all these changes. Uh, and I think you touch upon probably the most important challenge that marketers have today, right? Because there are all these technologies that are coming, which have a huge disruptive or disruption potential as far as marketing is concerned, you cannot be ignorant of those. You have to study, you have to learn. But at the same time, you cannot know everything about everything, yeah. which is also not pragmatic. So the key thing is, as marketers, you have to see what are the ones which are immediately hitting us already yes. that we need to be cognizant of and do something about? So firstly, look at artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not new either. The generative AI through chat GPT has become incredibly popular and very visible. But AI has been there before that. What you should do is don't get in, impacted only by the shinier part of AI. Exactly. There is so much that AI can do to vastly improve how effective your business can be and how efficient your business can be, number one. Number two, in order to be able to do that, including generative AI, you have to learn. There is no choice but for you to learn. Mm -hmm. 
quite a few programs which are available, either online programs, or you can take mentoring sessions. There are even YouTube videos to explain what AI is. Mm -hmm. And there are marketers uh, who are very willing and able to help other marketers to come up the curve. There are associations like ANA or WFA, which have got rich material that you can access. So I think there are a lot of resources available. And for at least learn the subject to an extent where you get the fundamental concept and you are able to ask the right questions. You may not have the answers, but you have the right questions. And if the answers are provided, you know whether that answer has got any substance or is it fluff. Because today, everyone who comes and pitches for business says, oh, my business is powered by AI. Now, I actually very nerdily sat with the head of AI of MasterCard and asked him to teach me about AI. And I took classes from him. I did a course at our course on AI. I read up tons of books on AI. Now, at least to the extent now, I will not call myself an expert in AI by any stretch of imagination, but I know enough to understand if somebody is telling me facts and substance or somebody is spinning and giving me fluff. Mm -hmm. Important and how many vendors I see on a daily basis who keep coming and so if they say my solution is powered by AI, I ask them explain how exactly do you do it? They don't have a clue. And so you, that that's one thing which is very important, particularly when there is so much of noise and excitement around AI. Now there are areas like augmented reality or mixed reality that are extremely important for you to understand. With the recent entry of somebody like a, a Apple which announced their uh, uh, device very recently, mixed reality device. You're anticipating one of my questions. This is good. <laughs> Go ahead. Right? That, that's going to be something which you have to learn. We don't know how successful it will be and how quickly successful it will be if it is indeed going to be successful. But you cannot just watch the world go past you. Trying to grasp what the concept is, but half an hour, 45 minutes is all it takes you to really get to the basics and the important points that you need to know. Investment of time to learn is very critical at this point in time. Uh, the last thing I would also say is that, you know, all of us, we allocate time for different things in our life. It's important that we have to invest a little bit of time for learning. At this stage and age, I still spend about five to five and a half hours every weekend trying to learn something. And that's basically to also inspire my own team to say, if I can do it, so can you. Mm -hmm. And most of them are much, much, much younger than me. And no, I'm not looking to become a super CMO at MasterCard because we don't have any position like that. So <laughs> because of if I've reached, I can always sit back and say, now I'm done. Uh, I don't have to learn anymore. No, if I'm spending time, I tell my team members, you have a career ahead of you. If you don't learn, you become obsolete very quickly. Mm -hmm. So invest time and effort in yourselves for your own development, learn. This will be my single biggest advice to marketers today. Well, and again, you've anticipated something I'm gonna ask you in a little bit, but it, it really gets down to you know, this natural curiosity, one, and then an agility to learn, right? And, and to, to be able to continue to adapt and do it with enthusiasm, Right. Because if you're genuinely interested in the topic and you want to continue to grow professionally and just as a human being, then it's fun to keep up with this stuff. You know, otherwise, it's going to feel like dragging a piano up a hill 
and it's not going to be very much fun and you're probably not going to make it to the top of the hill. Um, very quickly, um, I, I do want to talk about data. I come from a data background, um, you know, working with big syndicated data companies and working with sophisticated marketers like you. And you kind of made the point earlier with the left brain, right brain dichotomy. This is probably an unfair question. I'll probably just show my ignorance here. But just to make a point, if you had to choose between a brilliant creative and a brilliant data strategist, what would you pick? Any day, brilliant creative. Because? So in a world where data and technology are advancing so much, the competing field becomes very leveled. Because the same technologies are accessible to every company, irrespective of its size, because the cost of those technologies has, so, has become so affordable on the one hand. So there is a democratization of the competing field that technology enables. Number two, you've got data. There are so many legitimate data vendors who are out there mm -hmm. that you can get a ton of data. So access to data by itself is not a problem, but of course you have to be careful that you're getting permissioned data and not data that has been siphoned off the consumers without their knowledge. Yes. So you want to be ethical and absolutely have the highest levels of integrity and protect consumers' privacy. Now, if these two are actually largely going to be also driven by AI, and I have been seeing this trend over the last five years, the machines are able to provide a ton of support to you, number one. Number two, you also have got a lot of companies willing to partner with you on the data side and on the technology side to help you advance the agenda very quickly. Now, in a world where things are democratized because of data and because of technologies, the differentiation happens through creativity and innovation. Mm -hmm. And that creativity and innovation are going to be mighty, mighty critical to stay ahead of your competition. That's the reason why I'll pick them up. But in a holistic sense, I need, even if I am Leonardo da Vinci type of a person or not, my team has to be. I need to have, it's a Leonardo da Vinci team. There are right brain thinkers on the team, there are left brain thinkers on the team, and there are connectors in between who actually translate things into plain English and connect them and say, this is what we are after, this is what we should be doing. So this is what you need to do. So in fact, as I have written in my book as well, you need to build Leonardo da Vinci type teams because it's not easy to find Leonardo da Vinci type individuals, the rare individuals who have capability and have the dexterousness on both sides of the brain, they may not want to come and join in marketing. They want to start their own company or they want to join consulting. They want to join Silicon Valley, whatever else it is there. So therefore, in a situation where you're constrained by attracting real holistic general management kind of a talent, you at least want to make sure that you have people, the composition of your team complements and you have a real wholesome team.